Welcome to the Quantum Pod by Zapata Computing. Coming up in this episode, we have a conversation on enterprise quantum software and some of the pitfalls and opportunities surrounding it. Okay, so welcome to the Quantum Pod. I have with me Christopher Savoy, who is the CEO and one of the co-founders of Zapata. Welcome to the Quantum Pod. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So this is your pod today. Uh, so set the stage for us. Uh, what is in the pod with you? And this can be like music, food, uh, maybe some equipment, lab or otherwise that you you have in the pod with you uh, just off the top of your head. Well, I have uh, today, uh, spring training has started. And, I, and even though it's like 20 degrees outside in the uh, greater Boston area, uh, I'm thinking spring training. I'm thinking spring mostly so i've uh, brought the entire boston red sox team here they're a little bit quiet today uh, they had a bad season last year uh but I'm, I'm i'm coming to you actually from fenway park in the pod wow very very it's a this is a big pod but uh that's nice to know that we've got a somewhat of an audience and so we're gonna just start this off to set the pace with some rapid fire questions um to just go off the top of your head and so we'll start that off with what do you personally find most interesting about quantum computing? Wow, yeah, that's a that's that's a big one, isn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, I think that every CEO uh, who and founder and, and and scientific founder particularly thinks that their technology is going to revolutionize the world, and they always say that, right? And uh, but this one's really true, and I think I've been on <laughs> on tape a, n- a number of times saying this, and and it's a running joke now, like to say that, yeah. Uh, this is different. <laughs> this is really different. Um, and, you know, it's just, you know, when you think about computers and what they've done over the last few few decades and how they've, in every way of our life, in every um, area of human activity, really uh, had an influence. Uh, when you think of what quantum computing does and, and its function of being exponential in, in what it does for computing, um, I think you can expect... Uh, and I don't know exactly why, uh, how that's going to happen, but you can expect an exponential impact on those areas, those same areas at least, and probably different areas that we haven't thought of yet, of uh, human uh, society, uh, human activity. And, and I mean everything. I mean huge stuff, like the, the big problems, right? That's what quantum computing is going to do, just like uh, computers have influenced the big problems that, 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 that we uh, try to solve as humans, um, stuff like climate change. Stuff like predicting pandemics, stuff like that. I mean, really big things that really matter to everyone on the planet. Um, I think that this technology is going to have an impact in it. And I know that's everything. And that's why it's so exciting that you can really potentially impact so many different areas uh, in so many people's lives. And, and, and to me, that's really cool. Yeah, awesome. Okay, next question. Compare where we are today with quantum computing to a previous era of a different technology. Go. Yeah, well, uh, I'm going to get uh, a lot of flack from people. I have been asked this a lot. No, it's not. No, it's not. And yeah, you can make arguments every way. Every analogy like that, every metaphor is imperfect in some way. Um, but I guess if I had to choose, I would choose uh, the mid to late 70s um, and the Altair era, if you will. Okay. 
because right now the computers that we're today playing on aren't really good at much yet. You know, they're really hobbyist machines. Um, yeah, if you want to do something really powerful in high-performance computing, you go to a high-performance computer computer to do it, right? A classical one. Uh, you, you go to Oak Ridge. You go to a place like that that has, you know, Summit Supercomputer. Um, you, you, you don't go to um, your, your, uh, your, your cloud-based 10-qubit device. That's just not going to be the same thing by definition. The number of bits is just not there. Uh, the throughput's not there. And it's error, it has error. It's error-prone. So, um, but that's kind of how the Altair was. It, it was kind of funky. It was hobbyist. It wasn't really working that great or anything like it. Um, but it was good enough to do some pretty cool stuff as a hobbyist. And, you know, if, if you look back, I think as I was looking at the, uh, a few weeks ago, and like the, the coolest algorithm for like 1976, like the one that everyone was downloading. It, there wasn't really downloading at the time you typed it in. They got in in magazines and you typed in the program. Um, but the, the, the program that everyone wanted to do was uh, a graph of X and Y on, 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 on like two variables. That's it. Like, that's it. Like a graph. That was the program. And, and that didn't do much compared to like what the IBM computers did at the time to like do, you know, the equivalent of modern spreadsheets and calculate things and do transactions and whatever. They were already doing that stuff, but these Altair computers could do a graph. And that was like the coolest thing ever because it was being done on a personal computer, on a microcomputer in your house. And, and that was kind of revolutionary in that sense. Um, but the algorithms weren't doing anything really super compared to the, gener the, the, the other computers that people had in the back room yet, yet. Uh, but we were at the beginning of a revolution, and those programs, those basic programs and the assembly programs that were being put into those machines and the OSs that were created for those machines end up becoming CPM and DOS, which ended up becoming Windows, which ended up becoming Microsoft. And Microsoft was uh, busy in those days creating software. So, you know, if I were to give an analogy, Zapata right now is kind of like uh, the opportunity to be um, uh, Microsoft in the era of the Altair. And uh, hopefully it's accelerating a lot quicker than that generation did. But I, I think that's kind of an equivalent to where we are. We're on hobbyist type of things. And, and, and the people who are naysayers and the people who are like, you know, uh, curmudgeon pundits, they're saying, oh, these are just hobbyist machines. They'll never get there. They'll never be commercial. Well, lo and behold, right? We have Hark, the supercomputer, uh, the, the personal computer. I think now we're going to have Hark, the quantum computer, um, because these things are actually working, like the Altair. You could actually do something. It wasn't better than the best of the best yet, but it's something. And we know that there's a trajectory. And uh, I think that's where we are, and I think that's why it's kind of cool. Awesome. And then last of the rapid-fire questions is, what is the most revolutionary aspect of quantum computing? Well, the revolutionary aspect is is that um, we're doing something different from literally every other generation of computing before this, right? We're actually using different physics to do it. And it's not so much the physics of how you make the qubits and how qubits work or whatever, but I, I think it's the revolution is the break from classical, the break from classical computation, the break from doing everything as zero and one, on and off, uh, universal AND gates, OR gates, these things that we used to do everything. So everything from, you know, my, my phone to the supercomputer uh, in Oak Ridge uh, to uh, uh, the, you know, my Apple Watch. 
they all use the same form of computing. And so did, in some ways, if you really want to get, uh, you know, uh, broad about it, the, the abacus worked the same way. You know, it's a counting physical device. And that's kind of what these transistors are. And, 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 and so is a qubit, but it, the physics are different. Now we're going to use quantum physics to do this. And that hasn't happened before. We're not, we were never using different physics. We were always using something that was classical physics to do this. And, and to me, that's the revolution. What does it allow you to do? It allows you to do um, computations uh, differently. And it's not just, okay, it's exponential, it's superposition, it's this and that. But there are things like uh, in the recent paper uh, that, that Alejandra did in our group uh, showed that, well, you can measure like a flipped coin on two bases. Like, you don't even have a classical equivalent for that. Like, let's measure it twice from two different directions and get different answers. You know, that that's different. That is completely different. And it's not even a difference that's really accounted for in the whole gate model computing thing, uh, in, in a sense, that, 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 that that's digital in a, in a lot of algorithms. So we can use this measurement, these different measurement bases. There are a whole bunch of physics that we can access that... Frankly, I don't think everyone's even figured out yet and, and, and thought about thoroughly. There are all kinds of new tricks that um, we can uncover because we're using a different type of physics uh, to do this, different types of correlations, different types of math um, that I think are going to unearth things that we haven't even thought about yet. So for me, it kind of harkens back to your previous question. It's kind of like, where are we? It's like, okay, I'm staring at this ENIAC computer or this Altair or whatever, and I have no idea what the killer app's going to be. Like, staring at that thing, who would have looked at an ENIAC computer and dreamed up VR and games? Like, that's going to be a multi-billion dollar industry. Staring at an ENIAC with its vacuum tubes and, and wires and said, I can imagine gaming in the future. And <laughs> nobody would do that. And I think it's the same thing. Like, the physics are so different. The revolutionary uh, thing here is that it's so different that even the people who want to use it haven't figured out what it's good for yet. And to me, that's really kind of cool. That's where the creativity and that's where the revolutionary stuff comes from, is that like the, the future equivalent of whatever gaming is, is going to come out of this thing. And nobody's even imagined it yet. Uh, and to me, that's just very, very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And so while I sit here waiting for my quantum computing uh, gaming console, um, we're working right now at Zapata on building software for the enterprise. And I guess the question is, why do we focus so much on that right now? And um, maybe what has led us to, to do that? Well, I think with any kind of revolutionary new computing, um, the natural place to go is where, you know, um, where, where it's a new generation of more powerful computing, right? Like we're dealing with here. Um, you go for the more difficult problems that you haven't been able to solve yet, right? And, 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 and where do you find those things? Well, you find those things in things that are like causing big problems for lots of people at a time. And, and it also, there's, there's kind of a market factor here. Who can afford to do something with this new powerful thing that's really scarce? Well, you know, it's not like uh, home computing yet, you know? Uh, the first ENIAC, you didn't have one in every home. You know, that's, that's not what happens. Eventually, it'll get there. Maybe there'll be quantum computers in, 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 in people's homes, but um, that's, that's a future state. That's not now. Um, it's going to start with the really high-end problems that are expensive, but uh, expensive to solve. But like, okay, if we spend this much money, it has a return, even if you spend that much money. Those are the kind of problems, right? And so, where do you find those things? You find those things in like government. How do we predict like how to solve save ourselves from the next pandemic, right? How do we do vaccine distribution better than we did at this time? 
like that kind of big end stuff. And so if you can do it for vaccines and, and that kind of thing, okay, well, maybe you can also do it like uh, for uh, distributing food and distributing other things that really matter. And maybe you can do it with a lower carbon footprint um, than you do now. Uh, and, and those kind of big problems solve big problems. Therefore, they're worth a lot of money. And therefore, it's okay to spend the money on something as precious as time on a quantum computer. So that's why enterprise. And, uh, and, and personally, I, I think it's because why it's a Pata enterprise. That's, that's maybe a different question. But um, it's because uh, half of the company, we're kind of a two-headed hydra in a way, come from a deep enterprise, deep uh, problems in these kinds of industries thing from pharmaceuticals where you have to distribute these drugs or invent these drugs or come up with uh, uh, solve these chemistry problems or I also worked in automotive where you've got to do autonomous driving with all this video feeds and, and and enormous amounts of data if you get it wrong you hit the baby carriage and that's not good right um, so um, these things that, that that require that kind of computing are in enterprise and, and we have this expertise in addition to the incredible science of how you use a qubit and, and how you do the math, which we have in spades at, at Zapata um, with the people. I'm, I'm sure you're going to be introducing some of those people on, on, on this series. Hi, Ethan from the editing room here. Every once in a while, I'm going to jump in with some information that helps illuminate, clarify, or add to what we're talking about. Right now, I'd like to say that if you would like to see a selection of the incredible backgrounds of some of the people at Zapata that Christopher is mentioning, take a look at the people on our team page of our website. I'll put some links to that in the show notes. Um, and, and, and we also have, though, the other side of it, which is, okay, where are the problems? Understanding those problems, having the domain expertise on those problems, and how do you actually solve them at scale? Because it's one thing to do a five-qubit experiment on your little quantum computer that doesn't exactly, you're all tear, right? That, that doesn't exactly work right yet. Um, and, and another is, okay, how do I actually make that work when I have to get a gazillion gigabytes of stuff to be processed and work um, when I'm trying to train on these huge data sets of MRI images uh, from cancer databases so that I can do generative modeling and, and fill out that data and do machine learning so I can find if somebody's got cancer, okay? How do I do that at scale? Like, that's a different thing than doing a little experiment on little database, like the MNIST database, okay? We do that, we show it, but okay, the real important rubber hits the road thing is, how do I apply this to medical images? Which sounds like a, a, an easy transfer, it's not. As we know, doing things in a small scale and doing them really at an enterprise scale are very different things. And we've seen in AI, we've seen in ML, that when you try to do it the, in, the, in this little scale thing and you try to scale up, you, you tend to fall on your face a lot. And, and, and really getting that scaling working now and, and, and working well is, is really um, what we're doing and, and why uh, I, I think we're, we're different in that way. And I think it's an, an important aspect of who we are as a company. And it's, it's not just the why enterprise, it's kind of the why Zapata wants to do enterprise because we have something to bring to this field. Um, I think it's a bit of a different viewpoint. I think people are really satisfied sometimes when they did, hey, I did it on 10 qubits and I could do it with this tiny little bit of data. Okay, yeah, how are you going to do that when you're like working on enterprise regulated data in, in a real environment? Uh, I haven't thought about that yet. And that's really where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, so would you say it's fair to characterize this as a, a Venn diagram where maybe one of the circles is like industry knowledge and the other side is research and you've got to bring these both together to make 
it work and make it work at scale. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I use the two-headed hydra analogy because it's like wrangling these two things, but they're joined at the hip, right? Uh, they're, they're really, um, you've got to get them both working and both coordinating uh, uh, to make value happen, right? Um, the science and the algorithm side, which is where most of the field concentrates nowadays, is really important. And, 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 there's, and I don't mean at all to disparage that because without that, you don't get anything, right? But it's not enough. It's necessary but not sufficient. Um, you really need to have both aspects of this. You, and this has happened in, in, in classical AI and, and ML. Oh, it's great. I've got this great neural network. Okay, how do I actually put that into production? That's a big problem. And it's a problem that a lot of times the people who are, you know, headstrong on the algorithms don't think about. Like, oh, that's somebody else's problem. They'll, 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 they'll make it workify. Um, uh, and, and I don't want to be in the weeds of, of making that happen. But the truth is you have to be thinking about that even when you're designing your algorithm, especially in this world of quantum, um, because what you do on the classical side can influence what you do on the classical machine and vice versa. This pre-post-processing variational algorithm scheme is, and heuristic is the way most things are actually going to happen. And I believe it's actually still going to happen that way even when we get fault tolerance and, and we get fault tolerant computers. You're never going to do just a quantum thing. And, and without any relation to what you're doing with your classical input, output, ETL, all of that kind of thing. If you are, I don't think it's going to be that useful. And that's just my own opinion on it. Very interesting. And so, yeah, as we work with these enterprise customers, we see varying paths that they're taking to sort of navigate through these weeds and tame that two-headed hydra that you're talking about. And... I guess maybe maybe walk me through some of these different paths that they can take to work in quantum. Now, Christopher would split this up into two main categories. The first is... Thinking from a qubit-centric worldview. Now, what in the world is a qubit-centric worldview? Well, it's where you start with the qubits that you've got and you go, what sort of problems can I solve with this? Or as Christopher puts it, by and large, it's people coming from, wow, qubits, I want to I use these things. They're new. They're cool. They're awesome. Uh, and, and you're working kind of from the ground up. Okay, qubits up to, what are the problems I could do? And, and you still see a lot of this, like, what could the use cases be uh, based on the qubits? This from the qubits mindset can be further broken down into those companies that are looking for real use cases given the qubits and those that are just sort of playing around, hoping to strike gold, maybe doing a proof of concept. Or maybe they want a checkbox on their uh, shareholder report to say they're doing something with qubits because we heard about it and we got to be doing it, right? Just like big data back in the day. The other way of approaching quantum computing, as opposed to the qubit-centric worldview, is... Where it's like, I've got mathematical vexing problems in my company that are a lot of headaches. I don't know if quantum computing or neuromorphic computing or hamsters in cages can solve it, but something can solve this, please, right? Uh, and that's okay, a, a, a business-centric viewpoint of how I might use exotic compute, including quantum. Um, of the two, I don't think there's a right and wrong, but I think they both have disadvantages. I think if you come at it from a completely cubic focus point of view, you might miss some use cases that don't look particularly quantum from the outside. Yeah, yeah everyone's going to get the optimization case and all of this stuff, thanks to, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants from all that annealing work and everything. Okay, yeah, we can do those optimization things maybe better, maybe not. Um, 
you know, machine learning, quantum machine learning. Okay, yeah, there's got to be stuff out there. Well, if there's machine learning, there's quantum machine learning. That that's that's easier. But there are business use cases out there that are really complex, uh, that are really combinatorial in their in their nature, that require the kind of math that we could do better. Nobody's come up though yet with the quantum formulation of that. How do you turn that thing into you know some kind of representation as a wave function so that we can actually use a quantum computer to solve the damn thing? Um, and 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 there are probably a lot of problems out there that the qubit people aren't even looking at yet. So I think it's really those two general groups. There may be more, um, but I believe my belief is uh, that the ones looking for business value saying, I've got a real problem here. I've got climate change to deal with. I've got weather patterns that I need to predict and this kind of thing. And those people coming to us where they haven't heard whether qubits can do this or not, and then trying to figure out if there's a fit there. I think that that's where a lot of the, uh, I think, breakthroughs are really going to come from, if you ask me. An analogy for this would be helpful, I think. Let's pretend for a second that quantum computing is a sort of gold rush, where the gold is useful algorithms that might be able to change the world. The people thinking from a qubit-centric worldview are, in this analogy, finding a couple flakes of gold here and there. Maybe this one's labeled Grover's algorithm, and that one's labeled VQE. Once they find those flakes, they try to sell them to someone who needs them. In other words, they're starting from the gold and finding the users later. The other approach he laid out is more like a company saying, wow, I really wish I had a malleable conductive metal that I could use to patch up this thing right here. Hey, I wonder if gold would do it. Let's see if we can find some gold for this use case. And as Christopher said, there's really no right or wrong way to go about this. Different use cases and different circumstances will lead some companies to choose one way and others to choose another way. At Zapata, uh, the more interesting jobs that I think some of the ones that we've gotten, I talked a little bit briefly in my uh, Forbes article uh, a couple of weeks ago about, and, and a lot of it wasn't really, you know, uh, quantum at first that <laughs> we figured out, but um, but they had a problem. They had a mathematical problem and they, they needed to solve it. And, uh, and, and, and they came to us with that. And this was, look, we've got a business problem. I have no idea if qubits can solve it or not, but hey, you want to take a crack at it. Very interesting. And so in that that race to find actual value, starting from business use cases and looking for ways to solve it, do you have a personal preference between uh, quantum computers and hamsters in cages? Which one you think is going to win? Well, I, I, I'm never going to look down at hamsters. They are very, very cute animals. Uh, and, and they're pretty fast, too. Uh, it's just that you know, this is going to be exponential fast. So this is like a like a, a very big hamster on huge steroids, and and, and <laughs> this is going to be uh, very different. Uh, yeah, I I think that I I say that in jest because um, I come from that business perspective. People really don't care, right? They really don't care. Really, I think that um, most of the people from a business perspective or a government perspective or a big problems perspective looking at problems of humanity really don't care at the end of the day if it's this kind of qubit or an ion or ion trap or superconducting this or that or whose software is running the thing they want the answer they need the answer you know do we really care i mean will i be disappointed if it's a classical computer in a in a cat and mouse race with a quantum computer that gets to the answer first on how to solve cancer 
will I care that we lost that battle uh, or that we were part of it? No, um, absolutely not. Um, will, will the cancer patient care about that? Um, um, I don't think that you'll see a lot of people disappointed or sad if we get that result. Having said that, I think that we will find that quantum computers are going to do uh, 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 some things better, uh, some things faster, and are going to solve a lot of those uh, problems in the future and be a part of those solutions. And I think there's a greater chance in the future um, that, that we will have quantum computers doing the, the, the heavy work of certain mathematics that are right now considered intractable. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that these businesses are going to have questions, um, like starting maybe from what is a qubit and then what can I do with qubit? Some of the questions within quantum computing and the quantum space are just, they're hard. We don't know exactly what's coming up and businesses are going to need to navigate that shifting landscape. Maybe you can help walk through some of those those questions that are harder or more open. And how do you as a business go through that and try to find your way? I, I think that um, it's going to depend on the industry, right? Um, I, I think there are a couple of things that you can think about. Um, uh, on uh, when you think about your industry, you know the automotive industry is going to be different from the uh, food and beverage industry. Um, there are some similar similarities in that you're going to need optimization in any uh, industry. So if it's an optimization problem, yeah, in general that's true. Um, but how how disruptive is that going to be for you? Um, uh, is this is it fundamentally the kind of computing that we're going to do with, with these qubits? going to fundamentally disrupt how you run your business or not. That's 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 really important um, thing to think about. Um, also, you know, it, it, if you're a food and drinks company, you probably don't have too many quantum scientists working in your company. I'm just guessing, right? Um, but if you're uh, a, a pharmaceutical company, you might have a couple of quantum chemists. Uh, and if you're a materials company, you, you certainly will. And if you're a defense contractor, you probably know have, you have a bunch of people who understand physics. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, you do have to make that workforce assessment and say, okay, honestly speaking, could we ever hire a quantum scientist? You know, is a quantum scientist ever going to work for our pick your company? Okay. McDonald's, uh, you know, maybe by chance, uh, you know, uh, but maybe not. Um, and, 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 and you need to make that assessment. Could you still benefit from it? Could the supply chain at a fast food restaurant, McDonald's, uh, Burger King, whatever, uh, uh, benefit from these things? Yes. But are they going to be developing it themselves? Or are they? do they have scientists already in their org who can take advantage of this? Probably not. They're going to have to be thinking about um, uh, how they're going to partner and how they're going to find the expertise outside uh, to do that. Um, and, and if you think about that, you know, we, we can look at AI and ML kind of as an analog for this. Um, I think, and as a proxy for it, like how, how ask yourself, you know, uh, have you created your own AI organization in your digitalization efforts? You know, do you have AI machine learning experts in a group of 20 uh, doing work in your company? Or have you actually outsourced that or worked with uh, partners to do that kind of work? 
Um, do you have your own data analytics group? What is your data science thing? Is it in your business units or have you collated that into, you know, data scientists under your chief data officer? What does your organization look like? Um, uh, those things really matter. And, and that organizational design exercise is not something you want to take lightly. You want to start thinking about that and being realistic about that. Like, right, is our, is our enterprise really going to be able to attract you know, 50 of the best, very, uh, um, you know, uh, few, not not a dime a dozen people who are able to do this stuff, um, right? You know, few and far between globally, you know, we're talking hundreds, not tens of thousands of developers who know how to do this really, really well and figure out, okay, connect quantum math uh, with what my math is in my domain and, and like make between me. Uh, that's nothing to shake a stick at. And I think that you really have to be really uh, soul-searching and, and thinking about, okay, am I really going to be able to hire those people? Or is it best that I start talking with um, some vendors, either coming from the, the infrastructure side, or do I start developing those teams if I think I can hire them, right? Um, I, I think that that's important. Um, and I think you have to really think about um, what your goals are here. If this is going to disrupt your industry, then, well, maybe you, you, you think this is a plane-to-win thing. Maybe you do need to start investing. And we've seen some industries that know that this is going to happen. Like in finance, you know, quantitative finance is a, is a big thing. Figuring out tail risk is all about the math, right? So being able to do that better is disruptive. It is competitive edge. So if you're a finance company and you're not doing anything in quantum yet, you're already behind. Um, there are people hiring in that area, um, trying to get teams on board. And, and, and they can fortunately think about this in a term of, okay, five to 10 years from now, if this happens, oh, we actually better, you know, be, be in the lead on this stuff. So, you know, if the first quantum computer is going to show up five years from now, you can't start building your team when that happens. It's just too late. So you want to start building that capability, both from an infrastructure perspective and a team perspective now. Overall, we can pull this out to a larger point. Because there are a lot of open questions, companies need to de-risk their quantum expertise. Sometimes that's done by partnering with a company who can focus on that exclusively, but if you're the type of company that's going to have your industry disrupted by quantum computing, those that Christopher mentioned like finance and logistics, it would probably make sense to have people in your company working on quantum computing. Their toolset needs to be able to work with whatever architecture ends up winning out, whether that's ion traps or superconducting or silicon or whatever new invention we haven't even thought of yet. At Zapata, we've built our toolset Orchestra to help customers stay flexible while building those capabilities, but more on that later. Now, if you think that you're going to be a user for this, it doesn't mean you can kind of just sit on the sidelines either, um, but the, the, the strategy that you might take would be different, right? We're not going to hire people. We're never going to be able to hire people. We're not going to get a quantum scientist to, to, to put our logo on their, on their chest uh, uh, and, and, and come to work every day. But we can start working with organizations who have some expertise, as Zapata or an IBM or whoever that is you know, in, in this ecosystem, and, 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 and start thinking about this with our partners and thinking about, okay, how are we going to uh, make that, those partnerships work in the future when this stuff becomes real? Um, I think that those kind of things you can start thinking about right now. Yeah, definitely. And so the next question is, what are some of the implications here? Um, so how has all of that and what we've learned uh, shaped Zapata's offering? Um, I think we've we've kind of taken this from the, the customer's perspective. 
uh, and, and what they need to do so that they don't fall into the same kind of traps that people have fallen into with, you know, these, these revolutions, the cloud, uh, AI, you know, big data, you know, uh, and, and falling into certain traps as an enterprise. We have a lot of empathy for the CIO, the CDO, and, and, and the rest of the C-suite in looking at these things from a big enterprise uh, kind of perspective. And, and I think it is a different perspective. I guess three major takeaways that we want to help them you know, avoid falling into the traps of. Um, one is about playing to win. Like you can't, you know, just just think that this is an insurance policy and you check the box and say, we had a few people doing POCs, like these 50K POCs in, in the cloud, in this or that. No, it, if you feel that this is going to be disruptive to your industry, and it is for the ones that uh, we know, um, uh, you need to be in it to play to win, not, not to just uh, play with the toys. Uh, so to speak. So getting really serious about how this is actually going to play in production, which I discussed. Um, I think you need to really start kicking the tires now uh, so that um, you know that you can actually get in the car and the tires are actually going to run when this thing works, right? So um, you need to be doing the POCs. You need to be active, but with a view towards, okay, how is this going to work when uh, when I actually uh, want this thing to, to, to be in production. Um, so thinking about production and doing your proof of concept work with an eye towards where is this going to create business value and how am I actually going to put this into action in, in, in the real world. And I, said, and I would say finally one thing you, you really want to do in where Zapotic can help is, is, is not being vendor locked. Uh, from the onset, you know, there will be these big companies out there that will say, let's spend millions of dollars on POCs today. Uh, uh, and, and guess what? You know, if you work with us, we'll really help you with this. And then, ah, gotcha. Now you have to use our quantum computer and therefore our entire cloud. And you're going to move all of your cloud work over to us and not the other cloud vendor. Uh, I think that there's some kind of uh, uh, thinking out there that that's what's going to, that that is what is going to happen. And it would behoove you if you are a big company that sells cloud infrastructure and, and cloud offerings that, oh, I'm going to use my shiny quantum computer to get you to switch all of your cloud to my cloud. And, and maybe that's how you're using this strategically. CIOs don't want that, right? They, they, they've been trapped in a cloud and, and seen what egress really means and, and how expensive that can be. And not just from a cost expense, but, 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 but from a switching expense in, in so many ways. Um, I, I think we've learned that lesson, hopefully, um, in industry. And I think we want to uh, be able to avoid that and not have quantum computing be the new way to be recaptured into you know, a particular vendor roadmap. Um, I think as vendors, hardware vendors and software vendors in this field, we have to be empathetic to that view and really uh, realize what the customers really need, which is flexibility and not getting vendor locked at this early stage. Um, and that means being able to test things, benchmark things, and understand which vendors are going to work for which solutions at which times in my process and in my investment cycle. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's really interesting because each of those different points goes back to something that we've already talked about, right? The actually playing to win goes back to doing this for the enterprise and for businesses. The kicking the tires so that you can actually drive goes back to um, companies asking questions and getting them answered, tackling those hard questions. And then finally, not getting locked in too early goes back to, again, the, the questions, which is, there are open questions and you don't want to get locked in before you don't you know the answer to all of those absolutely yeah and if i were to you know end it with something is that i don't know and you don't know either 
You know, I, if you think you know, then you probably, you know, don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, you know, this is early. These are early days. You know, back to the Altair example. Um, if somebody knew about gaming then, how, how, how you know, rich and, and, and wonderful a life that would have been <laughs> if they could have figured that out. No, they didn't even have Pong yet. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, they, they weren't thinking about, you know, 3D VR uh, uh, games. Uh, but it eventually happened. So um, I, I think that that's where we are today. And, and, and the beauty of not knowing is also the other side of that, which is, you know, the opportunity and the immense opportunity that we have here. And that's why it's just a great privilege to, to, to be part of this whole revolution as it's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's great to be able to work on this as well with the incredible people, um, especially that we have you know, at Zapata and, you know, like you talked about building that quantum workforce. And if you start uh, too late, you're going to be, you're going to come to the party and you're not going to, there's going to be no one there. Um, and so, yeah, at the end of the day, this sort of all comes down to people. Um, and it's a, I think it's a good place to end on. It's all about the people and not necessarily the Benjamin. <laughs> it's all of the people with all kinds of names. Uh, yeah. And uh, and we've got a lot of those people at, at Zapata. And, and I think that's the other fun thing about working here is that um, we have some of the you know brightest uh, minds in this field, really, literally all in uh, under one roof. Um, well, not literally under one roof right now, but hopefully soon. <laughs> Um, uh, and, 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 and this is really the thing, having those minds and, and the enterprise minds with thinking about the business problems coming together, uh, with our partners, with our customers, with our, um, our colleagues, um, uh, that's where, um, it gets really interesting. Um, and, and we have a privilege to work with those, 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 you know, uh, uh, not just bright, but, um, I, I would say innovative and, and creative, uh, people that, that I get to work with every day. And, and that makes it just very cool and, and very engaging. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for stopping into the Zapata pod, and we can all shuffle out of Fenway now. Thanks, Ethan. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Quantum Pod, all about quantum computing for enterprise and what that means to Zapata. I think the main takeaway here is that when we say quantum computing for enterprise, we really mean to put the emphasis on enterprise. We're not finding the gold nugget of quantum computing and trying to turn that into a product that maybe no one wants. We're helping enterprise customers take a problem they already have and solve it with the incredibly useful tool that is quantum computing. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to like it, share it on Twitter, and tag at Zapata Computing to let us know what you thought. Until next time, this is Ethan Hansen reminding you to be very quiet. The qubits get upset easily.